HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This is Dan Machen. Hello, Dan. This is Severin, and I am happy to have you here on Greenhorns Radio, which is once every week between you and me, for young farmers, um, by young farmers. And I'm coming to you live from a traffic jam in Alabama. Nice. And um, I'm glad to have you here. Well, thank you. Yeah, I'm glad to be on the show, even if I'm in New York and you're in Alabama. So, Dan, tell us where you're coming to us from and what you're doing in the world. I beg your pardon? Sorry, I was on the volume, the bo- volume said, steering wheel. I said hi. How are you doing? Will you mind introducing yourself and where you're farming? Sure, absolutely. Um, I am Dan Machen. I'm farming out on Long Island outside of New York, about 90 miles east. It's a town called Southhold. Um, it's about 10 miles from the end of Long Island on the North Fork. And so, yeah, right outside New York City. So... Your farm is called Lone Acre, and that's for a reason, isn't it? Yes, uh, the farm um, is called the Lone Acre. Um, it's, I say it's one dude, it's one acre, it's about 100 different varieties. It's a certified organic farm, and it's uh, as of right now, it's just me. did uh, finish last year alone and starting this year alone again. So, um, yeah, it's exciting. Exciting time. This is, this is a, I was thinking about this is a pretty exciting time to be talking to farmers, or scary time. Um, everybody's getting going, getting planning and ready, at least in the Northeast. Yeah, everyone's got their mind in the game pretty hard right these days. Mm-hmm. Tell yep. us what's on your mind for your acre and, and, and how, what background you brought to that acre and, and what future you see for yourself this season. Sure. The, um, so I came to farming from a food consumer's perspective. I worked in restaurants in, in uh, Washington, D.C., and then in New York and Brooklyn, and um, I came at the perspective of just getting more and more in tune with where the food was coming from. Um, worked at some good restaurants where they were working more directly with farmers. And, um, you know, as time sort of progressed, um, I got more and more interested in that. And at a certain point, I I volunteered a couple times and been out to farms, just farming kind of in the relative close background of family. Um, so I just kind of pulled the trigger, went out to Long Island. And um, so my motivation is food, food-driven. And so what I'm out here doing on this farm is trying to really max out uh, in small space um, diversity uh, of vegetables, just uh, focusing on varieties, 
and having a lot of new varieties to introduce to people through, I'll have a CSA this year uh, based in uh, based out of Brooklyn and then also at Farmer's Market um, and then working with restaurants as well. That's, restaurants are still close to my heart because that's a really good outlet and stage for food, that um, for fresh um, produce. So this year, um, I'm, you know, as, as you know, I'll be doing 100 varieties. I purchase only organic seeds. Um, I, I save quite a few seeds from, from last year. There's a, there was a romaine lettuce that I have a lot of seed. Hopefully it's the same lettuce that I planted because it was a pretty pretty uh, romaine-style lettuce. And, um, yeah, I've got some loofahs, some big uh, scrubbing loofahs, which look like big cucumbers until you let them dry, and then they turn into those shower scrubbies. Um, I love it when you can grow your own shower scrubby. Yeah, <laughs> It is shower scrubby dish scrubby. Yeah, it's a good. So you, 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 of course, you can look like Whole Foods out on a farm, but who knew you could look like a Bed Bath and Beyond out on an acre? <laughs> <laughs> who knew, indeed. Well, you, it seems like you're living up to that truism about the new movement of farmers that if you want to eat like a king, you better work like a dog. Unless you want to uh, work for the man to afford it, you can just grow it and enjoy it your own self. But you didn't talk about how you learned how to farm, which is one of the things that many people who might have started in your foodie, foodie ways mm. um, would want to know about. How did that transition happen? Well, um, the working like a dog. The um, One of the things that, that I really think is true, especially if people are coming from a foodie perspective or having worked in restaurants, it's, uh, you know, a lot. Of, there's a lot of knowledge in farming, and I'm, I'm on the verge of a nervous breakdown right now trying to, wade through all the different knowledge, figure out which knowledge I'm supposed to be um, sticking to and planning out for the season. But the the way that I got my experience in farming is just going out and, and um, just really busting it. Just um, I I uh, I interned with a farmer who's just a real um, an extremely hard and diligent worker, and um, uh, enjoyed being able to work with Chris because he came at he came at farming with a farming background, so he did have some know-how, but Really, the the success of his farm was built on hustle, and so I did uh, about two and a half years of apprenticing uh, for a large organic farm called Garden of Eve Farm, and um, you know I basically came as a blank slate um, uh, with an intense desire to learn more about farming. I wasn't sure what that was going to mean, but I just worked really, really hard and um, just gleaned as much as I could, and the, you know. I think that as far as like exact knowledge, it's it's tough. Some people are good at it, coming at it from coming at farming from you know reading books and establishing knowledge that way. But I think a lot of farming is just kind of um, is kind of damage <laughs> is damage control or uh, improvisation. So um, kind of uh, I learned a lot of that with Chris. Um, I've learned a lot through different education events that I keep seeing. Um, the Greenhorns at around the Northeast and um, experience. If, if anyone's looking for a recommendation on how to get started, just jump in. Uh, you're not going to learn well, it. Well, I like weeks. that improvisation, just... observation, and hustle. Yeah. That's a good hustle. equation. Yeah. It, it equals it, it's no squared, vacation, but it's an equation. So now we're talking about um, the events that you've been going to and I've been seeing you, which is why we're, we're talking together today. Last time I saw you, we were at a CSA conference hosted by Just Food, and you were talking about your very unique CSA model. Maybe you could lay out a little bit of what we were what we were talking about on that panel, 
as far as the local e economy and um, the scaffold that the CSA provides for rebuilding a local food system, and also how your CSA differs from some of the other um, CSAs that are out there, and, and that self-directed, specific um, plan that you have for your farm. Just, like, talk about what it's like to be able to make that choice. Sure. The... Um, the CSA is another. Um, it's another big planning piece. It's a more formal piece to farming. It's a. It's a certain segment of, of marketing. It's. You're pretty much. What I'm trying to do with my specific CSA is to partner up with, um, a group of you know 15 to 20, couples, families that are interested in kind of pursuing sort of uh, a little journey of food curiosity, kind of. Um, um, the CSA model of getting food every week um, through this farming season in, in exchange for paying up, up front and buying, uh, purchasing a share and becoming part of a farm, community-supported agriculture. Uh, really, I'm trying to focus on maintaining uh, or establishing and maintaining a community that's uh, intellectually um, interested in what the season has to offer. And I have to be very clear that for my CSA in particular, uh, you know, I'm not. This isn't a Walmart share. This isn't like a food co-op share. This is very much participating with me, the farmer, uh, in the season to see what you know, what specific crops, what huge variety of crops can crawl out of the ground in the same region in which people live in, you know, 60-story buildings. You know, this is. And so, um, I'm, I'm going to interrupt you just to, sure. to, to really like write, t tell us about that. I mean, what is it? in your sensibilities as a farmer that you're bringing to your CSA model and, and what are you communicating to your members and to your, to your newly formed community about um, your, particular, um, your particular planting plan and your particular crop varieties? Tell me. Um, as far as what I'm communicating to them, yeah, like uh, you're going to be really upfront with them about what they should expect and, and what is exactly. That. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, that's um, with yeah. I I have to be very direct at the at the get go. I'm not dealing with a lot. Uh, yeah, just with with my land, they're very. It's uh, I'm not planning on a huge bulk of any one particular item. That I'm being very direct and and that expectations be that um, this is uh, CSA is to both. Uh, help the farmer and the consumer that um, this is an investment and the return is um, very specifically what this land is returning. Uh, I'm not promised. It's I'm not selling a movie. I'm not selling a you know. Um, there's their uh, expect. I'm you know, not, I'm selling a movie all the time. That's all I do. Exactly. I, you know, and I saw I, I've seen what you're doing. It's looking good. And I said, you know what, I'm gonna let Severin sell the movie. And I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a but it's you know, and I, I, I got to be careful. I'm not. Um, it doesn't sound like I'm the kindest in my approach to it, but it's like I'm not. I think it's more, much more realistic in any sort of dealing if you're very upfront uh, at the beginning what a realistic expectation is, and then to be pleased with, um, you know, what the farm has coming, and uh, as both an intellectual curiosity and as a uh, like astronomy. Yeah. So speaking of gastronomy, what are you doing today? What did you do today? What did you do this morning to prepare for this season? 
Uh, to prepare for the season, I've just moved into new house, new land at the same time. Um, I'm unfortunately spending more time inside than I'd like. There's uh, taxes are being finished. Um, there's um, I went through went through seeds. I got a bunch of seeds I kept. I'm going to be trying something interesting this year that worked last year. I don't know if it'll work this year. Is that garlic you usually plant in the winter? I mean, in the fall preceding the season, you know, so it has a dormancy over the winter. But uh, I didn't have any land, so I've kept all that seed, and I'm going to plant it and plan on getting either just little spring garlic skate, um, garlic shoots, kind of like um, bunching onions, except with garlic, or allow them to go all the way and see if I can get some mini. Um, many uh, heads of garlic, um, and um, some of them have rotted. So my house smells like quasi-rotten garlic, but that's a good thing. That's organic in- insect spray and pest spray. Just sit that soaking. So you're going to make a garlic, a rotten garlic slurry and yep. freeze it, or what? How are you going to keep gonna, your roommate gonna... and your garlic slurry? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm going to put it in a, probably put it in some, uh, let it soak in some water with some, um, some some of my dried cayenne peppers too, uh, and have that. I've got huge deer pressure, so you know, as as, as much as I should be doing outside, or as I wish I could be doing outside, I spend most of my, do most of my work uh, worrying about different things and trying to plan deer fences and um, other stuff in between, having to do kind of paperwork paperworky stuff. But I'll be pick, I'll be picking up uh, potting soil today and getting some early greens going and my onions. I'm a little late on everything because of my um, late arrival to land, but I'm now here. Well, let's talk about the late arrival of the land. Sure. And um, how did it happen that you got this primo? I'm sure that your um, one acre in Long Island could have gotten a pretty penny if they put it in a mansion on there. Mm-hmm. How is it that you're able to grow in that beautiful soil that was scraped off of Canada and deposited so conveniently close to New York City? Yeah, so, uh, I came I came to the land through um, through an organization called the Peconic Land Trust. Um, the Peconic Land Trust focuses on the east end of Long Island for the most part in Suffolk County, on working with uh, town, county, state, and federal levels to to raise put together funds to buy out development rights to parcels of land that are they have kind of three areas. One is they want to protect uh, agricultural land. They want to protect um, Wildlife conservation at land, and they also want to uh, protect open spaces. So they've gone in and bought out the development rights, basically um, disallowing the owner of the land to sell to someone who's going to put a bunch of little houses on it or anything. It's it's preserved for agricultural use forever, or until this empire falls. Um, and, yeah, the empire. Uh, the empire is definitely a part of the land trust modality. I would say. What else is part of the land trust modality? You notice a little bit of bureaucracy, perhaps. Yeah, it's it's it uh, it happened a lot later. I mean, there were, the talks were started early, but it takes a lot of time to um, to uh, kind of yeah wade through an you know through an organization. Whereas you know if you're purchasing land directly from a person, or you're or you're renting directly from a person. There's one person you go to and you say, hey, I want to put you know I want to throw some seeds in your ground and hang around and cut them up when they grow. And somebody yeah, says, okay, private fine. property has its advantages when it comes to a simple, per, more simple procedure. When you have a committee process involved in anything; it does tend to take a while, huh? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's uh, that's why the loan acres is easy to negotiate with. So if anyone out there needs to negotiate, you just come to me. 
there's no uh, there's no talk. But yeah, it took uh, it took a lot of time, and still takes a lot of time to make you know have decisions make their way through. Uh, and that's you know that's that's frustrating. It's slow when you're used to you know talking to your plants, cutting them, and then selling them. Well, one thing is good when you're in the beginning of your practice as a farmer, having to really argue and research and um, persuade people, um, be, it, be it the banker, be it your landlord, be it your nonprofit committee, um, especially when you have a lot of energy from having eaten a lot of bacon fat over winter, that is probably good preparation for the season ahead. So in that sense, maybe it's good to have it a team of people always asking questions and forcing you to think um, a few steps ahead of where, you're, where your ball is. And what I want to know is how come there's so many deer where you are and how are you going to deal with it? That's, you know, that's, that's the most recent, um, you know, and the, the other thing, too, that I need to mention about South Hold is where I am. It's, it's basically a suburban area. There's, um, I think there's 15 acres being farmed by another organic farmer, right, on pretty much on the same land that I'm on, uh, but I've got three houses on the front, and then like a housing sort of development um, south of us. So it's very suburban. So one of the things that you know, I one of the approaches that you can take on Long Island because the deer not only cause problems with vegetables and uh, certain uh, decorative trees and just agriculturally, you know, they're vectors for Lyme disease, which is, is you know nasty stuff. Um, and so there are uh, with the Department of uh, conservation, um, environmental conservation, you can apply and we, we qualify for what's called a nuisance permit where um, you have a hunter go out and harvest or kill deer out of season in order to try to control the uh, population, uh, which controlling the population of deer is, is great for everyone involved, including the deer. Um, cuts out stuff like dying of starvation. Uh, it all... So anyway, I'm trying to um, trying to trying to get that get that working. But when there's so many, oh, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just going to say, controlling deer seems to have become difficult in the context of very dense suburban development due to the proximity of small children and um, you know TV rooms. Mm. Like you pretty much can't get a straight, clear shot in the forest that's in between those kinds of houses. Yeah. So it does seem well, like if you ask the people who do um, conservation ecology, they'll tell you that um, suburban suburbanization is a really big contributing factor to the spread of Lyme disease um, yeah. because it creates the kinds of environments where there's not enough habitat for um, foxes and coyotes. There's plenty of habitat for deer and mice, and those are the major vector animals for the disease. Exactly. So, anyway, sometimes we demonize the tick, but um, there there are perhaps um, larger systemic um, causes to that spread of, of that. Have you had Lyme disease? Yeah, yeah, I got I got a Lyme's bite, um, but I I found it fairly immediately. So, took a month long doxy trip, uh, trip of doxycycline antibiotic. And uh, I've had several very expensive blood tests just to check it, and it's it's not growing, so it's in it's in check right now. So it's uh, yeah, it's not cool. And um, the you know I'd love to be able to afford. There are a lot of deer fences are going up here. The high, I guess what is it, high tension steel fences, um, but they're very expensive. Um, you know, I think it's four dollars a foot is a cheap 
price for it, and you know I have about a thousand feet that need to be maybe it's not four dollars. I can't remember what it is, but it's it would be um, several thousand dollars for me to put up a, a, a metal deer fence. Um, so I'll be trying to um, just do a combination of uh, cheaper plastic uh, fence. I have, like, a, a little bit of electric fence. Uh, I'll probably have um, I'll probably have a dog that um, that might help. It's, that's uh, deer are, are difficult. And so anyway, the, with the land trust, they, they have an interest in controlling the population, uh, but even then they have to check with all sorts of different people to check off to see if. A nuisance permit is something that's viable because they have neighbors, they have board directors, they have um, people who uh, you know, supporters, fundraisers. There's there's a lot that they have to deal with. Um, and then, like I said, it's a suburban area. Makes it, and what you brought up is a great point about deer in suburban areas. It's hard to pick them off and just deflect them when you know everyone lives very close yeah. together. Well, and they're terribly assertive. So. So I kind of want to, I want to just, well, one thing I just thought I would bring up very quickly is that we just were in uh, Faulkner. We just had breakfast in Oxford, Mississippi. Yeah. And we're about to go and visit born. this place called the Jones Valley Urban Farm in Birmingham, Alabama. Oh, cool. And um, we're stuck in traffic, but at, at Faulkner's house, he was really into chemistry, Faulkner was, and we got to look at his chemical cabinet and see that he had this uh, synthetic wolf piss that he would spray all over his uh shrubbery to keep away the dogs. Mm. Uh, it's a brand name, uh, Scram, made by Orso, mm. probably around the time period of Locker's life, which is 1935, so that was probably some pretty toxic stuff. But um, I've, heard, I've heard about using peanut butter on tinfoil and putting that onto your electric fences and the deer come and are attracted to the peanut butter and they lick it and they just get zapped right in their soft little wet mouth. So that's maybe useful to you. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, that's I've um, if I can get my electric fence up, uh, baiting the fence. I, I, I'm right next to another farmer who's um, who uh, just had electric tape to work with last year, and he got beaten up by them. And um, it's a matter of keeping the electric connected because you want to. Uh, I've heard that you can train them by, you know, putting out the peanut butter, have them test it, take the hit, and just get scared of that area. But you have to be very consistent with it because um, you know. As soon as as soon as the deer gets in and tastes that and they remember it, or I, I'm not sure what the mechanism is for them to put together, but um, yeah, baiting electric fence would be good. So Dan, tell us how people can track your um, track your progress. I know there's been a video about your farm on. Uh, I think it was was it Tree Hugger. It was. Uh, I think no. It's uh, let's see. It's Brook. It's food curated. Uh, she. I think they're hosted on Vimeo. Vimeo.com. Vimeo. I but think Liza Degia is um, she does a series called Food Curated. She's doing a lot of cool videos, short videos on people out of Brooklyn, and there is one on on the Lone Acre there. I, I have a WordPress site, it's loneacre.wordpress.com, I believe. Um, I haven't been super diligent with that, but um, uh, and then I'm at starting June. I'm in uh, Park Slope uh, Farmers Market on Sundays. Um, and um and you need you, volunteers any volunteers needed at this point uh if any if any uh psychotherapists or anxiety reducers out there or wish to like um volunteer their services yeah we can talk about that but um um we should know, start a farmer shrink alliance 
Yeah, we we do. Yeah, health health insurance, all this all this crazy. Um, no, but if uh, people people can contact me through loanacre.wordpress, um, and, you know, I think the loanacre at uh, the Gmail is another way to get in touch um, if people are interested in specifically coming out or talking to me about it. Well, Dan, thank you so much for coming on and telling us about your process and your project and your vision, and I do hope that I get to come and see it, and, and others of you that want to help out um, in ways that Dan might not even yet know that he needs help, get in touch with him, because um, sounds like he's got a lot of good early experience to share. Um, I wanted to take this chance to remind everybody who's listening today about the Greenhorns' upcoming events. Um, firstly, on uh, the weekend in Williams, Massachusetts, uh, Spurry Books, which is a publishing company that I'm sure you know about. They publish a lot of books about farming, especially oriented towards sustainable small scale um, and, and you know, book-learned farmers. Story Publishing is hosting a day-long food farm film feast fest up in uh, western Massachusetts. And I'll be there on Saturday on a panel doing screening with young, young farmers. I know Aaron Wolf of King Corn is going to be up there also, along with some other folks. And then super importantly, next weekend, which is um, March 20th and 21st, um, as I'm sure you know, it is the vernal equinox. And um, the time when we are preparing for spring and, um, in this case, cooking up a hogget. Um, so it's the Vernal Equinox Hoggett Cook-Off, hosted by Greenhorn, Animal Welfare-approved, McEnroe Farm, Kinderhook Farm. Um, basically, you should go on our blog and read about it, because if I talk for much longer, you'll get confused. But we're going to be butchering a hogget, uh, cooking it up, uh, tanning the hide, dyeing the fleece, eating the big feast of hogget uh, prepared by wonderful chefs. Um, from the city and the country, and then rocking all night to a wonderful band called Red Rooster, who are out of Brooklyn, um, led by the fabulous Jay Erickson. And then on Sundays, um, soap-making workshop, farmer yoga, field trip to um, field trip to the Chatham, Old Chatham Sheep Herding Company, and to McEnroe Farm. So uh, the press release and event details are up on the blog. If not now, then later today. So please do um, go on there and read about it and sign up because the spots are limited and they are not free, although they are free if you are a young farmer um, and email us about getting a scholarship. Um, those scholarships are provided by NML Welfare Approved. Thank you so much. Billy Nelson, thank you so much also to Hearst Family Ranch for sponsoring this show and every show, to Heritage Radio Network, and to all of you um, with your mind in the game as you prepare for this big season. May we have a nice, dry summer and a warm spring, and um, see you all next week. Bye-bye.